everybody, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about being a conqueror. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to say Happy New Year. As we move into 2021, maybe one of your goals is to read the Bible more this year. There's something that we do as a church that might help. We are constantly running Bible plans on the YouVersion app for people to read together. If you're interested in being a part of one of those, you can simply go to creekside.me and click on the yellow button that says YouVersion in order to connect with us on one of those plans. I believe that God's word can transform your life. And if it is one of your goals to read it more this year, I think it's a great goal. And we'd love to be able to help with that. So go to creekside.me and click on that yellow button that says version. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen today. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I am 37, coming up on 38 years old. Now, I think of myself as middle-aged now. And, and when I talk to younger people, they're like, well, no, you're old age now. And when I talk to older people, they're like, well, you're not quite middle age yet. Uh, so I just look at the, you know, the life expectancy and think, well, by some standards, I'm about halfway. So that's got to put me in the middle age category. Uh, but, but no matter how you describe me, I'm starting to see the effects of not being young anymore. I can say it that way. Now, most of you know that many years ago, I was diagnosed with MS. And for the most part, I don't have symptoms. But lately, I think because of the stress of life, there's been, I don't even know what this means, but I say this to people, uh, I feel MS-y. I know that's not, no, no, everybody's like, what are you saying? But I have felt something. Now, I don't, I don't have extreme symptoms. I, I haven't uh, ever since uh, I was first diagnosed, but, but I have felt something. Uh, but on top of that, I mean, there's so many things, like I have this giant lipoma in my back, and you've heard the story if you've been around for a while, I fell off a ladder, I got a lipoma. It's a giant chunk of fat that's in my back. I had it removed, paid $1,200, worst $1,200 I've ever spent uh, because it came right back. And it makes me more sore than, you know, anything I do. I get sore in my back from this lipoma and I'm now realizing I got to deal with it for another half of my life, you know, or keep paying $1,200 every few years for them to remove most of it or whatever. Uh, man, eating I, I've always enjoyed eating, but everything makes my stomach have problems now. I thought I was going to be like 60, 70 when this started, but like, let me, I have a list. Uh, I, I haven't been able to have gluten forever because I think that's part of my MS and what makes it better and worse. I can't eat almonds. I can't have cashews. Dairy seems to be a problem. I mean, what is left? At least I can have Mexican food still. Uh, so I'm thankful for that, that Mexican food remains but if God ever takes Mexican food for me, then it's, I'm done from me. It's like, I'm good to go. Uh, and, and so, uh, so all the, you know, at 37, so what's it going to be like when I'm 74, right? Like, I mean, it's not going to be an uphill climb from here. I know that much. And uh, as I was preparing this sermon this week, I thought of, uh, is it is, is that how you say it? The Hawaiian singer man who's, who died at 37, actually, uh, I learned this week. Uh, died at, at uh, my middle to young age. Uh, and I was thinking about his words the whole time. I was, I think partly because it was a sunny day when I was doing a lot of my studying for this sermon and partly because of the subject matter. But, but he's the one that kind of most famously now, I think, sings um, a What a Wonderful World, you know, that song. And uh, it wasn't his song, but I think 
His is the, the version you hear when you're at the bowling alley. Come on, the radio or whatever. It's the one that you hear most frequently. And I, you know the words. I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And it talks about looking around and seeing skies of blue and blue oceans too. And skies, yeah, that's right. Uh, and and, and as I, so I'm sitting there and it's sunny and it's a nice day. And I'm studying for what we're going to look at in just a second. And I'm thinking about these words. And then I'm like, I don't know if I was just in a mood you know that if you listen to my preaching, I can get in these moods where I become very introspective and I don't take anything at face value. But I just thought like, not really. Like, it's not that wonderful of a world. I mean, I've already, we just prayed for Kevin and Ashley and Landon and Noah and little baby Noah, you know, not a baby anymore, but he'll always be a baby to us, right? Like just in the hospital for 10 days and nobody can figure out what's wrong with his blood. Uh, oh, you know what else was happening this week? My mom, who was watching, I think. Hi, mom. Uh, my mom uh, was like on her deathbed. Uh, two negative COVID tests. Finally had a third COVID test, and it's positive, so she doesn't know what to make of all of that. But uh, but she was asking me to make sure her dog was taken care of if she passed away, and and you know, and I'm feeling it messy, and and then I'm thinking about what we're gonna, what I'm gonna preach on this morning, and 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 all of us like, come, it's actually not that wonderful of a world, right? I mean, like it is, it is a very difficult and and world filled with tons of struggle and hurt and pain, and that song does not play well in 2020 to 2021, right? Like it's just like, come on, idiot. You know, I shouldn't say that. He's died now, but like, uh, actually, he, he was a Christian man. I learned this week too. He became a Christian, uh, but like, it's it frankly is not that wonderful of a world. It is a difficult world full of challenges and hardships and struggles, and you realize that more. I think as you get old. And that is all really depressing, but here's what is good news for those of us who are Christians, and what we're going to see in the passage today is that while this world can really, really stink, because of what Christ has done for us, we actually have victory over eternity. We have an eternity to look forward to that is much better. We're doing this series of sermons called Conquerors, and in this series, as you can see in the tagline, the victorious love of God in Romans 6 through 8. We are looking at all of these ways that we are victorious if we're Christians, that we are victorious because of the love that God has for us. And we have these incredible victories. We have victories over sin and death and victories over uh, the, the binding of the law in our lives and victories over just our inability to live in the way that we want to live. We have, we have these great victories, but Paul now is going to make a really big deal about the ultimate victory that we have in Christ, that we have victory in eternity. And here's how he starts in Romans 8, 18, because it's beautiful. This is going to be a beautiful passage. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We are dealing with a lot of present sufferings. And I think that is the hardest part. I know I've talked to some of you about it individually. The hardest part of kind of the last year of our lives is not that all of a sudden there are sufferings, right? That we suffer because we've, we, you know, you're born, you get used to that pretty fast. Like you're going to suffer. We all suffer. What has been so difficult about 2020 and end of 2021, March to March this year, uh, is that there's so many things that are coming at us at once. I mean, we have faced the COVID-19 thing and 
politics have been a mess and our economy, you know, is struggling and a lot of people are hurting there. And then, and then anything, and this is what I've noticed, and I know some of you I've talked to about this. And so you have all of that on kind of a global, at least national scale. And then, and then you add in anything personal and those personal things, for me anyway, have just been so magnified in the last year. Like things that never would have bothered me hardly at all. I wouldn't even consider them. It's like they just, it's like one too many, right? Like in the, on the scales of life, it's just one too many struggles. Like I, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And it's like, I can't deal with this today, like whatever this might be. And because of that, I mean, me personally, like I, I'm tired and I've said that in sermons and I think a lot of you are, are really tired. And, and what Paul says is that this suffering doesn't compare to the glory that we have to look forward to. Uh, ben Witherington III says, what is being discussed here is not present sanctification. This isn't about our growth, which Paul has been talking about, our spiritual growth becoming more Christ-like, but the internal and also external renovation that resurrection entails. This is about what we get to look forward to in eternity. And where Paul starts is simply this, this really easy, easy idea that, that what we face now the, the suffering that we are dealing with now, it doesn't compare to what we will experience in glory. And here's kind of the picture he gives. I'm going to give you a picture and then my own illustration. His picture is like if you had a scale, a balance, right? And if you put all of your suffering over here and then the glory over here that, that we get to look forward to, that the glory would, would go down like this because it's going to be so much better than, than our suffering is bad, which I just think that's, that's cool, right? Like... I mean, if, you know, all the things we've dealt with this year, like the glory, the goodness of heaven and all that we have to look forward to is so much better that, that it's, you don't even compare them. And the, the word, the Greek word behind this is like the scales idea, the weight of it. Uh, for me, like, you know, I didn't grow up in a world where we were balancing weights and things like that. I did that in chemistry class. Probably wasn't chemistry, some science class. I don't remember what science class. But for me, what I kept thinking about all week was, was trophies. And, and if you've been paying attention to my sermons, all of my illustrations now are because I'm trying to go through all of this keepsake stuff I have. My, my grandma kept everything that I own. Every, I remember the Iowa test scores, any of you? Like, I have all of those. If you want to know what, I was, what I'm smart at and what I'm not smart at, I can just hold up a sign and, okay, this is what I'm good at and this is what I'm not good at. Uh, and so I've been going through all my stuff. And part of that is I have trophies, a million trophies laying around. It's not really a million, but I like to say it that way. Um, and, and so we've been going through some of that. And, and I think about, this is, uh, my dad coached this team, 1994, District 7, 9-10 All-Star Tournament. And you can't see it, but it says first place right there at the bottom. First place, yes. Uh, we had a lot of first place together, my dad and I, thankfully. But I think about uh, what we did to get to first place. Um, this is, my dad, no, this is my dad right over here. He's the coach, and there he is raising his hand. So we, in the summers, he was a teacher, so his schedule allowed for this. We would wake up, and we had hitting practice at 8 in the morning, and then he'd let people have their days. We would come back in the afternoons for fielding practice, and then in between that, pitchers and catchers had to have practice. And so we were doing three-a-day practices. I was 10 years old. We were out there practicing three times a day, and so you're at the baseball field, I don't know, four to five hours every day in your summer. This is what you're doing as a kid. And that's hard, right? And, and the reality is, as kids, you like it for the most part, but 
But in all of practice, if you ever played any sport, like you just don't want to get up some days. Like it's not that fun to show up and practice and run and sweat and work out and all of that. And I think what Paul is telling us here is not that we earn our glory. Don't get that out of this illustration here. But that when we get to heaven, it will be like receiving the trophy. And nobody, nobody that I've ever met, when they get a trophy, when they get a ribbon, when they win the award, when they do whatever you get in art, they have the final show, you know, everybody's happy with how it looks. Nobody goes, oh man, all that hard work just wasn't worth it. You ever thought, like, I don't know if you've won anything, like, have you ever achieved something? We asked that question today. I don't know if you've ever, like, accomplished something great. I have never met somebody who accomplished something grand, who accomplished something awesome and said, all of the stuff that I put, all the work that I put into that just wasn't worth it. All of the suffering wasn't worth it. And, and I think what Paul is getting at here is, is, you know, the balance idea. However, I think it's more like this. When you go into glory someday, if you enter into the gates of heaven, all of this, it just won't matter. Like it'll be, you'll just be overcome by the joy of glory and you'll think, who cares about all of that stuff that I dealt with? Because this far exceeds it. It's so much better. All of the stuff that I suffered, it made it worth being alive. Because sometimes we can question that, right? And I mean, Suicide rates are up and people are really questioning, is it worth it to be like, well, it is if you're a Christian because, because you know that you can look forward to an eternity where all of it will no longer matter because it will be overcome. You'll be overcome by the joy of a perfect eternity. What is glory? I should just pause there. I mean, what is glory as we think about that idea? Well, I think first and foremost, it's, it's about being in the very presence of of God. And I know that's not a great selling point for some people, but if you've ever experienced the the presence of God in a in a way that goes beyond kind of normal, then then you go, wow, that's I could live there. I could live there. I think of uh Jesus' disciples who were on a mountain with him and, and the glory of God is revealed in a special way. There's bright light, there's uh, old dead people there and Jesus is glowing and and, and when they, they're sleeping, these disciples of Jesus, and they wake up, and Peter, what does he say? He says, it's good to be here. He's overcome by the, the glory and how good it is. He doesn't want to go back down the mountain and deal with the suffering anymore because now he's seen what glory is like. So surely the glory is, is partly with just being in the presence of God, but, but it's also everything that we look forward to when we look forward to heaven, right? Like it is... No more sorrow or suffering or pain or crying or tears or any of that stuff. But also it's, it's good, you know. Think of what is good. Think of what the world would be like if it really was a wonderful world. And, and just insert that into your picture because that's what we have to look forward to. And when we do, we'll just go, all that suffering doesn't even matter anymore because, because this is so incredible. And Paul moves from there and then he moves into this thing that I think is, is so interesting. It's uh, I think it's interesting and I think it's important. In verses 19 through 22, it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
Creation here is everything besides you and me, everything besides people. That's what Paul is referring to. Everything that we can see and touch and smell and all that that isn't human. That's what creation is here. And Paul says, this is so interesting, that creation is waiting in eager expectation. The idea here, the picture of this word, sometimes Greek words have really beautiful pictures behind them. And the picture that this Greek word uh, gives us is, is like of a person who is waiting for somebody to like return and, and they have their heads up. That's really the meaning behind it. They have their heads up and they're staring at the horizon because they can't, that you want to get that first glimpse. I, I mean, so many, I don't know this is just popping in my head now, but I remember driving to California and, and we would stay in uh, Sacramento when we would go to Disneyland when I was a kid. We would sleep in Sacramento, just outside of Sacramento, and we would always play this game where we would try to be the first person to see the Capitol building as you kind of pull into the Sacramento area. We would, we would keep our eyes on the horizon. And here Paul is saying that just like that, because you're moving towards the destination that is good, the creation, everything that we can see and touch and feel and smell and all that, it's waiting, it is waiting for the revelation of God's children. Now, that's a big idea. We are God's children if we're Christians, but what Paul is talking about here, and we'll get to more of this in a second, is the return of Jesus. Creation is waiting for the return of Jesus. Uh, in Genesis three seventeen and 18, we read about the beginning of the curse. Man and woman, they send, and, and then this is what we read. Cursed is the ground. It will produce thorns and thistles. And so after sin entered into the world, we've been really focused as we studied the Romans on how that affected us, right? We became slaves to sin and death. We've been bound by the law, all these bad things. But now Paul kind of turns this corner. He says, all of creation is struggling because of the sin that entered into the world. Creation is, as one author described it, running down. You can see some of the phrases. It's in bondage to decay. It's running down. It's going downhill, just like our lives. You know, after we get to middle age, at least it's, it's moving in a downward trajectory. Things are, are growing worse for creation. We see that right in our world and we can see how the world seemingly just has more and more struggles like natural disasters and things like that. And that's, you know, we see some evidence of that biblically, right? It's running down, but also within the confines of the world, even as it runs down, we see this just, this just circle, the circle of life, I guess, to use the phrase that Disney used. You see that things, they are born and they grow, but then there is a reality of decline and decay and death and, and decomposition. That is what happens to all things in creation. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible? It's kind of about that. It's like everything's going to end badly anyway, so why do anything? And he gets to the end and says, serve God. That's pretty much the point of the book. But, but it's like I, I plant these wonderful gardens, but oh, next season I'll have to deal with them again because all of this stuff is going to die. And it's, it's really this picture of what Paul is saying here. Creation is a slave to decay. And because of that, and uh, as, as he personifies creation, he says creation is just groaning. It is crying out for the moment when Jesus will come back and, and his sons and daughters will enter into glory and creation will be fixed. Someday it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and it will be brought into the freedom and glory. 
It's really interesting. I, I just, I don't know if this will matter to you, but I found it interesting. Creation shares in our glory, humanity's glory, as we share in Christ's glory. That's the picture that Paul is giving us. Creation shares in our glory as we share in Christ's glory. A big theme in the Old Testament is the restoration of creation, especially through the work of the Messiah, through the work of the man that we know as Jesus. And the language is very vivid in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the theme can tear, carries forward, but it's not as vivid of language. Like in the Old Testament, we read of a new creation, a new Jerusalem. The heavens will be changed like clothing. There will be deserts that blossom, which is such a weird kind of crazy idea, right? It talks about how wild and domestic animals will lay down together, the sheep and, and uh, the wolf. You've heard that before. And then how ferocious and poisonous animals will no longer destroy, that they will give up destroying things. And in the, in the New Testament, it just kind of carries it on with more broad language, that this creation is going to get better. And I want to pause here and say, I think one of the things that we get so wrong in Christianity is that when we think about a glory, we think about somewhere else. And, and I am actually, I, I, I think the Bible, it teaches, it teaches that we will not spend eternity in heaven. I know that's crazy. But we will actually spend eternity in a restored, on a restored earth. I, when we die, we get to go to heaven if we are Christians. But then when Jesus comes back, he is going to remake this earth. There will be no more bounding to decay as it's described here. It will be perfect. Now, I, this is so much easier for me. I think one of the reasons people aren't excited about glory is because we've lost this and we picture heaven. And for me and people in my generation, when we picture heaven, the movie All Dogs Come to Heaven comes to mind. That's really what we think of. And literally that story, I won't let my kids watch that till they're much older. It's about a dog who's bored in heaven and so he chooses to come back to earth. And, and you know, as a kid, you go like, man, that does seem kind of boring sitting on a cloud by yourself with a harp I don't know how to play the harp I'm not going to do well in heaven like you heard me sing last week this kid's not going to make it in heaven like this is this is how this is how I grew up picturing my eternity and it wasn't very exciting but what we see in this passage is that this creation, what you see here, is longing for the day when God will make it right again and there won't be decay. In fact, it will actually be a wonderful world and not the world full of suffering and brokenness and all the stuff that we feel. If you, are a, if you, are, if you want to think about it, if you're a person who's like, what will eternity be like? I can tell you what it will be like for Christians. It will be like this world without all of the bad stuff. I love the idea of going, I mean, right now I'm on a kick where I'm scared of mountain lions because I saw that video. If you haven't seen the video, good night, don't. Because you'll, like, it's so irrational. Mountain lion attacks never happen and I'm like in the woods with my kids like, don't eat me, don't eat me. Uh, but can you imagine the day? Can you? Like, can we imagine the day when we can go hiking up on a beautiful mountain with a beautiful view and the mountain lion can come out and we can just pet him. Because that's, that's what the eternity is going to be like for those who are Christians. And even creation itself, outside humanity, is just longing for it. In whatever way creation can long, it's groaning for the return of Jesus so that we can live in a glorified earth in his presence. And then Paul moves it to us. In verses 23 through 25, he says, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Creation groans for restoration, and we groan if we are people for glorification. The first fruits may point to a Jewish holiday called Shavuot, which was uh, the holiday where they celebrated the first fruits of the harvest season. And, and that same day became the day that we call Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit, God sent His Spirit upon people and the church began. And so Paul is probably in some ways saying when the Holy Spirit came upon Christians in a general sense, they received the first fruits of what glory will be like. But also in a personal sense, when we become Christians, if you become a Christian, you will receive and you will be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And this is just a foreshadowing. It's the first fruits of what you will receive in eternity when you live in the glorious presence of God. Now, I think it's really important to understand that Christians, this is what it's pointing to. We live in a state, this is stolen, everybody says this, this is not, I'm not the first preacher to use this phrase. I don't know who started it, but we exist in a state of already but not yet. Already but not yet. When you become a Christian, you, you reap some incredible benefits. We have forgiveness of sin, which in and of itself is great. We don't have to look back anymore on our old sins and, and feel terrible about them. We can be forgiven. Uh, we, we have new sense of what love is. We have a new sense of, of joy. We have peace. We have all of these incredible things as Christians. A relationship with God. Access to a God who cares about us. As we talked about last week, we have the adoption of sonship. We have been adopted. And so we can cry out to the God of the universe who created all of this. We can cry out to him, Father, or Daddy. We can cry out to him, Dad, and expect him to work everything for our good. These are incredible gifts, right? but we look forward to something so much better. Here's another flaw I see in modern American Christian thinking. We talk like becoming a Christian will make everything better in your life. In fact, lots of people on television who preach make money by just basically telling people that if they grow their faith, then everything will be good and right here. I generally don't think people are idiots. Um, and people become Christians and soon realize, well, this isn't working, right? Like, everything's not magically fixed. Everything's not magically better because I became a Christian. It just, it's not how it works. A far more biblical teaching is, is simply that when you become Christians, you do receive incredible gifts. But you don't receive the ultimate gifts until you die or Jesus returns. In fact, none of us, I guess, will receive the ultimate gift until Jesus returns and makes a new creation. But when we die, we do get to go to heaven, and that's, I think, pretty good too. And so so Paul here is describing this already, but not yet. And for me, the best picture that he gives us here is this idea of being sons. He says, in the last passage, last week I said this, that we are adopted as sons, and we can cry out to God, Abba, Father, which is like Daddy. We can cry out in a very close way, like a, a, an intimate way to the creator of the universe, Dad. But now he says we eagerly await our adoption as sonship. And, and I believe that the picture he gives here is, is one of like, we've been adopted, and, and we can 
talk to this new dad of ours on a phone, but we are waiting for the moment when we get to go live in his house. And I think that, for me, that's, that's beautiful. For that works. I, don't know, I actually don't know if that's Paul's intention in kind of this analogy here, but I think that's so beautiful because I can envision what, I mean, even having a dad that I've had forever, right? Like, I can envision uh, the time where we're just able to talk on the phone versus, like, getting to hang out, right? And, and we get to go from, from, from just this relationship with God that is imperfect to one that will be perfect someday, And we get to go from having peace and joy that the rest of the world can't have to having perfect peace and joy and hope. And I guess we won't have hope. Peace and joy and love and all of it in eternity. And that's what Paul gets out of here. He's like, we hope. And he's like, just by the fact that we hope, right? That means that this ain't it, as it's been famously said. This ain't it. There is something more to look forward to for Christians, well, we may have great benefits now. There is something more to look forward to in eternity. And Paul says that by saying, like, who hopes for what they have? Nobody. That's the implied answer, right? Nobody hopes for what they have. They hope for something they don't have. They hope for something better. They hope for something that they're looking forward to. And someday, well, right, I, I never really even thought about this until this week. He talks about how we'll see in verse 24. And what's interesting right now is that Almost none of the benefits of being a Christian can be seen right now. Like we can, I, one, one that we can see, I say almost none of them, because I can, I can see the benefit of church, actually. Like I see the benefit of having these relationships that are different than relationships that I have with, you know, my friends, my good friends outside of Christianity. There's a difference. <clears throat> but most of our benefits are, are not <laughs> like, hey, I have new joy. Do you? Like, like, I mean, like, actually, hey, I have peace that the rest of the world doesn't have. Really? Because I can't see it. And I believe that's true, obviously, but we can't see it. And and Paul says that we hope for a day when we're going to see the benefits of our salvation. In Hebrews 11.1, we read, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We have faith, and that faith produces hope, and the hope is in something that we currently cannot see. In 2 Corinthians 4.16-18, uh, in the middle of a section on the resurrection life, like our new bodies, Paul says, Therefore do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Listen to this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And then he goes on in in chapter 5, verse 2, says, Meanwhile, we groan. Creation groans for its restoration, but we groan for the day. When the benefits of our faith will no longer be things that are unseen, but things that are seen. One of those, that's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, is a brand new body that is not subject to the decay that we feel that won't have MS, that won't have a lipoma, and that will be able to eat dairy without any stomach problems. Like that, to me, like I, I floated on a cloud and all that, like come on, like that, that's not exciting. But being able to eat whatever you want, whenever you want to eat it, and knowing that you're not going to get totally out of shape and unhealthy and and you don't have heart problems because of it, that's appealing. Like, that I can totally get behind. Being able, like, my stupid 
20, I don't know how old Drew is now, 26-year-old brother-in-law, is he 26? Like, I've come to a point, don't tell him I said this, I hope he's not watching church this morning, but like, we play one-on-one, and my, my athleticism is not what it was even three years ago. I have trouble getting by him. I have to play like an old man now. I'm getting a low post game, if that means anything to you. I, didn't, I thought like I could hold off on, on playing like an old guy for a few more years. I can't. I can still beat him playing like an old man. And now I understand why Dr. Tom, the old guy at the gym I grew up playing at, he played like an old guy because he had to play like an old guy. I, I love, Drew will not be more athletic than me in heaven. Uh, and I love that idea. And what I think I want you to understand is that sometimes we just don't look forward to this enough. And while there are incredible victories for those of us who, right now, there are, there are incredible victories for those of us who are Christians right now, the ultimate victory that we have is over eternity. We have these short 70, 80, 90 year lives, right? And then eternity in perfection. Like this is hard, but eternity will be perfect. Paul moves and he says, he comes back to this, uh, an idea that I preached on not that long ago. It's one of the last sermons that I preached when we had our full church together. Romans 8, 26 through 28. I'm just gonna read it and I'll kind of skip past it. Uh, but he says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. This part you gotta really listen to though. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The series is called Pray. You can go back and listen to it. I went back and listened to it. It was a good sermon, so I recommend it. But uh, go watch, listen to it. But notice what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. I think that, I just want to pause and say this. We've seen this in the last couple of weeks. He enables us to fulfill the law. He subdues the fallen nature. He assures our adoption as the children of God. He guarantees and gives us a foretaste of our final inheritance. And he helps us in prayer. But in all of it, we know that if we are God-loving people, Christians, God works for the good of those who love him. And so here's, what a beautiful victory, right? So look, already, but not yet. That's how we exist. But even in the already, we know that even the suffering that we face, even the hardships that we go through, there's a promise. And the promise is not, hey, God caused this, so trust in that. No, the promise is that, that, that even though they happened to us, even though God didn't cause them, he's going to work in all of it for the good of those who love him. I have taken incredible hope in this, partly because I believe the Bible to be true, the inspired, infallible word of God, but partly because I've experienced it in my life. There is not one hardship that I can't look back on and think, that was terrible, yet I can see how God worked it for good in my life. That can take a decade. (laughs) That can take more than a decade. But I have seen, I, I don't just believe this because it was written in the Bible. I believe it because I've seen it prove true in my life over and over and over and over. And then Paul closes this thing. And, and, and I love how he closes it. But 
I'm gonna, I'll read it first. I'll read it first, and then I'll talk about the difficulties here. Uh, For those God foreknew, he, pre, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, I, I have some higher education in the area of biblical studies, and, and I think the only reason I've ever paid any attention to this verse is because it is the center of theological arguments. Uh, theological arguments basically about the order of salvation, Latin ordo salutis. Uh, it's this term in theology that causes tons of division and argument to basically ask this question, uh, did God elect people he foreknew or did God foreknow the people he would elect? That's my, I, I'm doing poor theology, for anybody that's theologically driven, it's like that's a little too simplified, but that's basically the argument. And so you go, if you knew nothing about this, you would go, who really cares? I think that would be like your thought, like who actually cares about that argument, about the order of salvation? When we're talking about order of salvation, it's not in your life, by the way. It's long before the creation of the world. It's like, how did God order this in his own mind and being? It's not about like, how does it play out in actuality in our lives? And so this becomes an argument passage. And what struck me this week as I was studying is that because it's an argument passage, I don't know that I've ever thought about how important it is to my own spiritual life. I've looked at it basically like a math problem, like eh, how does this play out, right? But today, I don't want to go into any of that theological difficulty or nuances. I would have people in our church, I'll just tell you, they'd agree, they disagree strongly and still love each other and get along and can even talk about these things. It's one of the proud things about my church that we have theological nuance and we can discuss them and still care about each other and love each other. But just think about what Paul is saying. Think about the context here. The context is like God is your father, okay? And all of creation is crying out for the day he'll return to get us. And even us, we are crying out for that day because we exist in this time where we have benefit, but we hope for something so much greater. And so we are not satisfied on this earth. But while we're here, you can know that the Holy Spirit will help you in your prayer life and God is working even all the bad stuff for your good. Now, do you think Paul's main point here is to be like, let me give you a theology lesson in the middle of all this? He's talking about how great it is to be a Christian. God knew that you would be before the foundations of the world. Uh, there's some great security in that, right? God knew that you would be a part of his family long before you were born. And in that, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of your son. He said, look, I know that you're going to be a Christian, and I'm going to work in your life to grow you, to make you more like me, to make you more like I created you to be, and, and that part of you that was ruined by the sin that entered the world. I, I predestined that you would grow in that way and become more like me. And for those same people, he called us. I just, I love that. Like, I just, just think of like, Anytime you've had a phone call where somebody gives you good news, right? I mean, this is, this is kind of at the heart of it. He called you into a relationship with him. He called you to accept him, right? He called you and offered you the ability to come into a relationship with him. You've been called to be in relationship to Christ. This is incredible news. And then he justified you. 
justified. We've talked about that word a lot. If you've been around, uh, you know, you're getting used to it. You should be able to find it for me. Justification is simply to be made innocent. God made us innocent despite the fact that we are guilty. And he did that by sending Jesus to die for our sins and bringing him back to life. And all we have to do is place our faith in Jesus and we are justified. We are made innocent. And then Paul says, for those who have been made innocent, he also glorified them. All that we've been talking about. But he puts it in the past tense, and I think it's because it's so sure for those of us who are Christians that we can just, we can just say, absolutely, I've been made innocent. And so while I'm not glorified yet, I already am certain that I will be glorified. This is beautiful. God knew me. He, he predestined me. He called me. He saved me. He justified me. And he will glorify me. This is not some math problem to be solved. And I think those, let me just be clear. I've had lots of those discussions. I think they're important. We can have them later if you want to. I would enjoy it. Let's have coffee and talk about them. But I don't think that's at all at the heart of Romans 8. Romans 8 is about being a conqueror. And Paul says, you're a conqueror because of these wonderful attributes that you have in Christ that you are foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified. We should take incredible hope in these things and the fact that they are the reason that we have victory over eternity. That's what Paul's getting at. As you sit here today, do me a favor. Let's do this. Let's finish with this. I wrote it down, so we might as well do it. Can everybody close their eyes with me? And can you just do your best to picture a wonderful world? Just close your eyes and think about all the beautiful things that you've seen And then think about how great, how much greater those things would have been if there was no death or sick moms or people that you can't be with and you had perfect warmth and perfect joy and perfect love. If you are a Christian, if you accept Jesus as your Savior, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, then that's what you have to look forward to in eternity. And that means that we, all of us who are Christians, have victory over eternity.